Welcome to this Fan Engagement Pod special looking at the Fan Engagement Index for the 2020-2021 season. We'll be looking through the results, chatting with special guests and looking at the state of fan engagement in English men's professional football during last season. We'll be speaking to clubs, supporters, trusts and fans and experts in the field. We'll be telling you who's got what, who's risen, who's fallen and where every single one of the 92 has finished this year. Now over to the table and we're counting down from 92 to 71. Ninety-two, Swindon Town. At ninety-one, it's Harrogate Town. At ninety, it's Bolton Wanderers. This year's eighty-nine is Burton Albion. Number eighty-eight, Gillingham. Number eighty-seven, Newcastle United. Number eighty-six, Mansfield Town. And at eighty-five, Salford City. At eighty-four, it's Leeds United. At eighty-three, Preston North End. At 82, it's Charlton Athletic. At 81, it's Chelsea. At 80, it's Watford. At 79, Arsenal. At number 78, it's Derby County. At number 77, Crystal Palace. At number 76, Colchester United. At number 75, Birmingham City. At number 74, Middlesbrough. At number 73 this year, it's Liverpool. And at number 72, West Bromwich Albion. And at number 71, Forest Green Rovers. Everyone loves a table, but it's only one part of the Fan Engagement Index. We love to use the index as a chance to spread best practice throughout the industry and beyond as well. First, we look at dialogue, and I'm delighted to have had the chance to chat with Anthony Emerson from Stoke City. Anthony is Head of Marketing and Supporter Growth and the club's SLO, that's Supporter Liaison Officer. He talks about the Supporters Council, a form of fans parliament, that Stoke City have had since 2010. Fans are elected by fellow fans and the body meets with senior club representatives and directors. The thinking behind it was very much fan-led. The, the, the fans wanted to, uh, to present matters of, of general interest. Um, across the wider support of this, but they wanted uh, some representative fans to do it. They wanted to take the club around the table and say, look, we've got an agenda for you. These are the matters that mean the most to fans at the moment. And we want to speak to board members, senior management. And then if you don't mind, once we've set the agenda and put it in front of you and, and had two-way dialogue, let's, let's get the minutes out there for, for all the fans to see. So I've been at Stoke City for seven or eight years. So I, I came into a model and I must say, joining in on a supporters council model as that I felt that there was you know nothing hidden everything was on the table I guess some clubs maybe try and steer an agenda set an agenda but I know in, in all honesty being on the club side of things working in a club like Stoke City that it's got solid ownership has got um it's it's hard in the middle of a community let's get around the table let the fans set an agenda and, and we'll put anything on record so for me at this particular club, it's something I'm, I'm really proud of. And when you talk about transparency, dialogue, uh, key topics, key issues, explanation to a to the wider fan base via some complex 
uh, detailed minutes that don't just skim over the fact that delve down and, and talk about the real discussion points. And uh, the people that represent on the supporters council, they're, they're democratically elected. We have regular annually, uh, well, annual elections that go via our website. So any fan can say, well, these are the people we want to represent. And then we, we take the, uh, you know, the people who've received the most votes to, and they're the ones that go forward. It's quite an interesting uh, and uh, handy body for me to have working at the football club because if someone comes in sideways with a communication or a query and that will be a supporter then you can quite often say why don't you put this towards a supporters council and why would you do that because I think uh, there's a, a real general interest point you're raising here so rather than come at myself as a support liaison officer or another senior manager and you know, we can do the one-to-one -one dialogue, but quite often we'll use the support of council to sort of our advantage and hopefully the fans' advantage to say, you know what, why don't you approach support of council or, or I'll copy the support of council in on your behalf to see if this is something that's got, uh, it's got the foundation to, to, to make an agenda and therefore the point that you raise, we think and what other people will want to raise it, other people want to hear what the club's answer is and, and then get it on the agenda and take it from there. And, and I think that's an approach that, that's worked quite well. If a supporter comes back and says, no, no, I just want to know now for my own peace of mind what we're going to do about X and Y, then of course we'll do the one-on-one. -on -one. I think that the supporters' council is probably our jewel in the crown in terms of engagement. Well, it is, certainly in terms of structure and dialogue and, and big topics and big sort of uh, big ideas, if you like. Um, but we've still got the phone calls, the one-on-ones, the cups of tea and all that type of stuff that, we, that we'd always do. We had a game last night and a lot of the time was spent walking around the stands, walking around the concourses and speaking to the supporters in groups or in individuals and, and just taking ideas and, and discussion points from there. Football clubs generally, well, football clubs universally, they want support. They want support. They want a, a galvanisation, a growth, a trust. Now, that comes through communication and, and dialogue. When you work in a football club, you're basically working in a, in a centre that's just got a lifetime of memories. You're dealing in some a place that's just, you know, it's just in a real emotional centre. Now, to bring fans along on that emotional journey, to buy in, to invest with tickets, to invest with retail spend, concourse spend and anything else, just to be on side and just to cheer from, the, cheer from home or, or to cheer from the stands, you're only going to get that if, if there's a bit of two-way bargaining, a bit of two-way discussion. You need, you need someone to get on board. It's a relationship, isn't it? You know, in terms of a personal relationship, you can't have a relationship without trust. You know, a man, uh, um, personal relationships, nothing without trust. OK, well, let's have a look at a, a relationship between a, a supporter and their football club. There needs to be trust. There needs to be dialogue. There needs to be transparency. So for me, if you're talking about a real model of transparency, if you're a real model of dialogue, two-way comps, as you mentioned earlier, Kevin, give it some structure. Give it some seniority in terms of the people that are accountable on behalf of the agenda. And by that, I mean, if the fans approach the club, let's have some people of influence answer and then if the people of influence are answering why don't we do that on in a minuted format oh, okay well how good are the minutes going to be let's make them very good thank you very much what are we going to do with the minutes we're going to put them front and center on the club's main website thank you very much so for me as you pointed out you know from the off i'm very proud of support a council as it is at stoke city and and i would fail to see where anyone wouldn't benefit from it in, in a footballing context, certainly when you're talking about a football club that wants to go places and take fans with it, and not just current fans, fans of the future, growing the club, et cetera, et cetera.
Now back to the table and it's 70 to 51. At 70 it's Coventry City. At number 69, AFC Bournemouth. At number 68, it's Oxford United. At number 67, Tottenham Hotspur. At number 66, Nottingham Forest. At number 65, Aston Villa. Number 64, it's Sheffield Wednesday. And number 63, Hull City. At number 62, it's Blackpool. At number 61, Wickham Wanderers. At number 60, Bristol City. At number 59, Wolverhampton Wanderers. And at number 58, Manchester City. Number 57, it's West Ham United. Number 56, Rotherham United. Number 55, Scunthorpe United. Number 54, Morecambe. And at number 53, it's Wigan Athletic. Taking up number 52, it's Stevenage. And number 51, Sheffield United. Part of what we try to do at Think Fan Engagement, particularly through the Fan Engagement Index, is to simplify and explain fan engagement so that it's easier to do. One of the least easily understood parts of fan engagement is governance, but governance is what ensures the predictability and regularity of fan engagement. Swindon Town haven't fared well since the Fan Engagement Index started, but things have changed radically since the end of last season, with the takeover by Clem Morfuni. The new relationship between club and fans is underpinned by a governance measure, an MOU, that's a Memorandum of Understanding, something we measure in the Fan Engagement Index. We hear from Rob Angus and Steve Mighton. Rob, until he became CEO of the club last year, was until then Vice Chair of the Supporters Trust, Trust STFC. Steve is current Chair of the Trust. We discuss the massive changes since the takeover and some big projects the two organisations are working on together. It was a, it was a mess coming in, Kevin, and as you said, you know, um, coming from nationwide and obviously being vice chair on the trust, working with Steve uh, previously. Obviously, we knew a bit a, a bit about the club from what we could gather, and and we knew the the difficult situation we were coming into. But it, it was a real mess. Um, look, the the staff that were left, obviously, all the senior the senior staff had had gone and you know, created the mess of the previous owner, but. The staff that were left who hadn't been paid, they were great, to be fair, and really rallied round and knew what they were doing and really got there, sort of helped us get the hands to the till and trying to, you know, and, and we're probably now seven months or so in, you know, trying to uh, uh, take the club forward on a, on a, you know, much firmer and solid footing and living by, you know, the, the mantra that the new owner Clemwell Funny gave, which is part of the reason I became chief executive on the basis of being open, transparent, engaging with the supporters trust and supporters club uh, and doing all the positive things that you, a bit like you said, you'd expect to someone who, who recognises that a big part of a football club is the fans and that he's the current steward of the club. Yeah, I mean, I've been involved since 2013 with the trust and obviously those early years were with the previous regime, difficult times. Um, you know, we had a relationship of sorts, but there was absolutely, I'd say, zero trust, you know, in, 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 you know, it's a two way thing as well. Um, obviously, working with Rob for, you know, five years or whatever, we've, we've worked together on the trust activities and and also with Clem Morfuni, the, the new owner, you know, for a number of years as well. That trust, thankfully, is in place from day one of the new new regime. So, you know, that that's a huge obstacle we've overcome straight away. And obviously, 
Rob has seen it from both sides of the fence now, and I've worked with him now. We've done YouTube videos together, looking at the club's finances and trying to piece it together. Lots of secrecy previously, and now we've got the opposite, absolutely the opposite. And in the six months he's been in charge, Rob has done an amazing job. And I'm not saying that just because he's on the call today. You could ask any Swindon Town fan that. Um, but the change has been overnight, instant, and it's been an immediate upward curve. You know, the transparency now, if you look at the minutes that come out of the advisory board that, you know, Clemmer's committed to long before he took over, um, you know, the advisory board is fantastic sort of in terms of what we want to know about the club. It's all there to be seen in the finances being the most appropriate and the most important bit that football fans usually latch on to. You know, you can see the debts that have been inherited. You can see how they're coming down every month. Uh, and I think, you know, I've spoken to a number of people outside of the Swindon football scene and they're blown away. You know, I've not seen that at any other football clubs. So that that's the first bit of the governance, I suppose, is that advisory board structure. And I think that's paying off. You know, we do have a two way conversation. I think the criticism we probably get in these early months is that, you know, Rob's it's, it's a bit of too much of a cozy relationship. But I can assure you it's not. You know, the difference is I can WhatsApp to Rob any concerns that we hear, not just me, all of the board members for Trust STFC. We get in touch with Rob. He's there. He answers within minutes. Um, any concerns we got, we raise it. They're discussed. The advisory board sort of formalizes that and puts it on record. But, um, you know, we've had some difficult conversations and Rob's had, you know, plenty of things to consider. But I think he's now in a different different place. He's got to run the show, you know, much more. It's a totally different perspective he's got now, whereas we're still the supporters on the outside. We know lots more. We've got lots of ideas and enthusiasm. But at the end of the day, he and Clem have got to pay the bills. So we have to respect that. But that advisory board structure, the memorandum of understanding we've signed, which outlines in detail, you know, how this relationship works. All really good stuff. And I think, you know, there's, there's lots more we could talk about, you know, in terms of the, the stuff where we're working together. I mean, from a trust perspective, I think in 2017, we had our AGM and we said, let's work together. There's lots of problems at Swindon. You know, let's work together, the fans, the football club, the council, the local media. You know, let's all push in the same direction rather than fighting. You know, it never really happened before. Now we've got that for the first time. Yeah, I, I think this is the way football clubs should be run. I know Clem, the owner, is the same thing. Football clubs, you know, it's all about the support base, your local community, being open, being transparent, being engaged into all the things that Steve said is so important. Because I think then, you know, people are going to people are coming back to you. You know, I know we've had people... Um, that, 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 that are really pleased with what we're doing. We want to work with local charities. We want to be a focal point of the community where the people from in and around Swindon can come together on a, on a Saturday afternoon. And we've got plans working with the Trust and Supporters Club to make that more of an experience. But, but again, as you say, it's not, this isn't about uh, return on investment. It definitely isn't a short-term thing. You know, it's a long-term thing that, that is going to go on for a, a number of years. And I think it will help take the club you know, forwards in the right way. Over time, it will grow the fan base and, and illustrate just how an important part a football club can be to its broader community. So, look, Kevin, the, the, the county ground is, is owned by the local council. So the club pays, you know, a significant amount of rent on an annual basis to the council. Um, you know, and obviously it's a stadium that needs quite a bit of work on it. So we've, you know, been in discussions quite a period of time now with the supporters trust to purchase the, the, the council together on a 50-50 basis in a joint venture, which gives, um, puts the county ground into an asset that gives long-term protection to the, to the ground and is a real benefit to the club, but also to the sports as well, and provides protection that the, 
the ground will always be there for the benefit of the club and the supporters, which, as we know, is not always the case. And we're hoping that that will get approved in the um, local council's um, uh, March uh, cabinet meeting. And then that will give the green light for, for you know, the trust and, and all of the supporters in the club to work together to deliver it. But it's something, Steve, I know you've been working on for, well, about, probably about six years now, six, seven years. Yeah, the conversation started in 2015, so seven years now. Um, it's been a very, very long road, lots of ups and downs. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it's something the football club desperately needs, the local community needs. You know, there's going to be uh, with the situation we've been in is the council owning it. Nobody's willing to invest in the stadium. It's getting more and more tired. So this is a huge enabler for the progress at Swindon Town as a whole. I think Rob's been sat on both sides of the fence. So that's fantastic. You know, we were very conscious, weren't we, Rob, when we were working together on that from the trust perspective to make sure that this was owner agnostic. So whatever happens in the future, you know, the stadium is protected, but we must have a way of enabling progress. And I think that's what's going to happen now. And it's 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 massively exciting. It's something that I, I can't wait to happen. And um, yeah, it's going to be, I think, I don't know if it's the first, but, you know, the supporters and the football club going 50-50 on the asset, you know, the stadium is pretty unique, I think. And I think there's loads of opportunities to spring off the back of it. So very exciting times. And now back to the table, it's 50 to 31. At number 50, it's Port Vale. Number 49, Fleetwood Town. Number 48, Stoke City. Number 47, Huddersfield Town. Number 46, Northampton Town. Number 45, Peterborough United. Number 44, Manchester United. And number 43, Sunderland. Number 42, Southend United. Number 41, Cardiff City. Number 40, it's Burnley. Number 39, Blackburn Rovers. Number 38, it's Fulham. At number 37, Leicester City. At number 36, Brighton Hove Albion. At number 35, it's Southampton. And at number 34, Ipswich Town. At number 33, it's Barnsley. Number 32, Queen's Park Rangers. And at number 31, Cheltenham Town. A big part of the Fan Engagement Index is about transparency. It matters because this is part of the process of engagement, making sure that people know what is being discussed in their name, what decisions are being made on their behalf or with them in mind. Let's hear from Paul Barber, the Chief Executive and Deputy Chairman of Brighton and Hove Albion about what this means to a club like his. We also chat about the new Fan Advisory Board, a form of Fans Parliament in the Fan Engagement Index, that the club are putting together for the new season. Paul Barber has been at the club since May 2012, becoming Deputy Chairman in 2018. He's held leadership and senior positions at Tottenham Hotspur, the FA and Vancouver Whitecaps in Canada. He previously worked outside sport for Ogilvy and Mather and Barclays PLC. Yeah, I think the first and most important thing for us is, is that we set out to be transparent in everything we do. So we've always said from when it comes to fan engagement that you know, people, our fans may not always like the decisions we make. They may not always like the outcome of, of, of various debates that we have with them. 
but we'll always be honest with them and always be very transparent with them about what we're doing, why we're doing it and how it impacts the fans themselves. And the second part of that is to actually engage. So that means that we have to um, make sure that we see people regularly through our fans forums. So we will try and do at least six to eight a year where up to three, 400 fans can come together um, and meet the senior executives of the club and ask them whatever questions they want to. Those sessions are never scripted. They're never prepared in advance. We don't always know, or most of the time, we don't know at all what questions are coming. Some people might send things in that they would like us to address, and obviously we will we'll, we'll deal with those. Um, and we'll also make sure that we respond very promptly to emails and letters that we receive as well. So in between the fans' forums, people know, our fans know that they can write in, they'll get a quick response. Again, they may not always like the response they get. It may not always be what they want to hear, but it will always be an honest appraisal of, of what we're doing and why. And I think, you know, we use other channels. We use obviously social media. We use our match programs. We use our website um, to make sure that we keep up to date, or keep fans up to date with everything that's happening in the club. Um, and it gives them that chance then to uh, ask questions about what we're doing. I mean, I think it is quite unusual, and I don't say that to, to, to blow my own trumpet. It's just my particular style of working. I, I can take the temperature of the football club and the business as a whole at any one time, judging by the correspondence that I receive. And I always understand that those that have a complaint will always be you know, the people that write in most often. So I, you know, I always try and put those complaints into perspective. I talk to the supporter services team about whether the issue that I'm dealing with is, is a common one that they're dealing with. And if so, how many people are writing in? So we can get a, we can get a general sense. Social media gives us a clue as, as, as to things that people aren't happy with. Um, but I like to respond personally because one, I think it's an important part of my job. Two, I think it shows the fans respect that they deserve. Uh, and three, as I say, it gives me a, a, a small temperature check on the organisation and the issues that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, I think the irony, I, I suppose, for us is that we don't actually feel that there's a great demand for it amongst our fan base. In fact, the, the response to it since launch has been fairly lukewarm, to be honest. Um, which is sort of counter perhaps to what Tracy Crouch might have imagined when she recommended uh, the, the setting up of these sort of uh, structures within her report. But I accept totally that other clubs and their fan bases may have a far greater desire for it and, and appetite for it. But I think partly because of our commitment to transparency over the last decade that, that the chairman has owned the club and, I, and I've been here as chief executive, we've we, we couldn't be any more transparent in what we do and how we do it. So I suppose a lot of our fans think, well, what is the fan advisory board going to add that you don't already provide? Um, and my answer to that, I suppose, is, is a little bit more structure, um, a little bit more formality to the, the dialogue, um, a chance for some of the big issues that we might end up debating being recorded for the club's history and, and people then can look back and see how we moved in certain directions and why we did. Um, and for, for, from that point of view, it must be and would be and is going to be a good investment in time. And that's really what we're talking about here is an investment in time from a couple more of our senior staff on a regular basis to engage with a group of fans that other fans elect. And I like that democratic approach. I like the fact that there'll be a record of what we talk about. 
And of course, although a lot of our fans forums are filmed and recorded and people can go on YouTube and find them and, and listen to them, um, this would actually be a formal record that would go into the club's own board minute meeting uh, minutes. It would also give the fan advisory board an opportunity to meet the whole board at least a couple of times a year. It would give the uh, fan advisory board the opportunity to bring issues forward that they feel are important for the club's heritage or important issues that, that we haven't actually found a way of, of, of engaging with or debating in another, in another format. So there can be no, um, for me, there can be no downside to having more engagement and no downside to having elected representatives who put some effort and time into it um, to, to support the views of other fans. And I don't have a problem with that. And, and as a club, I think if we want to be at the leading edge of fan engagement, this is one part of our strategy that we haven't had before. So let's do it. Let's see how it works and let's go from there. Now back to the table, we're counting down from 30 to 11. At number 30, it's Milton Keynes Dons. At number 29, it's Shrewsbury Town. At number 28, Bradford City. At number 27, it's Walsall. At number 26, Accrington Stanley. And taking up number 25, it's Crew Alexandra. Followed by number 24, Rochdale. Number 23, it's Brentford. Number 22, Crawley Town. Number 21, it's Millwall. And number 20, Everton, the highest placed Premier League club. At number 19, Lake Norian. At number 18, Grimsby Town. At number 17, Barrow AFC, the new boys. At number 16, Luton Town. At number 15, it's Tranmere Rovers. At number 14, it's Portsmouth. At number 13, Oldham Athletic. At number 12, it's Swansea City. And at number 11, Plymouth Argyle. Trust can be in short supply when it comes to fan engagement and relationships have to be built long term. We hear from Dave Matthews-Jones, fans elected director at Cambridge United Football Club, a post elected by the membership of Supporters Trust, Cambridge Fans United. The role has existed since the fans raised £100,000 for the Bridge the Gap campaign in 2004. Dave has held the role since 2016 and is also the club's SLO. Um, I do a report to the board. Um, uh, saying what I've done the previous month and trying to say what's been done uh, by all fans, you know, and bring it's just a monthly report. Um, we'll, we'll, I'll read it and they'll bring up points if they, if they need to. Um, we talk about um, on the board, we have a diversity um, sub board um, committee up there. So, um, we're talking about that, which we then talk to the community trust and we're talking to uh, the, the supporters trust. Um, the, it, the club also has a management structure, management board, which deals with the day-to-day -day for the match days and things like that. Um, so they're making decisions and then um, I'm finding, um, I'm, I know either in advance or afterwards what they're doing but most matches are just rolling all the time um so there's very little actually that is um confidential 
in a way that you can't say, whereas, say, four or five years ago, it seemed to be a very erratic um, mm. because things were happening all the time. So at that point, you, you had to keep asking people and you had to keep saying, well, what do we do? What do, what do you want me to do? Sure. But football, football has changed over the last 22 years since we became a trust. You didn't have um, any fan engagement 20 years ago. You didn't have any talk of um, parliaments and fans being listened to. I think supporters' trusts may have to uh, evolve over the years. And with, um, with the fans' um, shadow boards through the fans-led review. Um, so if that can be done properly, that will give supporters the, prop the engagement that they deserve. Um, and maybe that's not going to be the trusts, but I, there's lots of different ways of doing a um, shadow board. You could have all the different groups within a football club each have a member or you can say what the fan the um, support as parliaments are now could do it but in theory it, it's so much better than what we had 20 years ago we had to raise a hundred thousand yeah. we raised a hundred thousand so we got a director and yeah. you know and that worked well and then the next year um we went into administration and so uh, before that we sold the ground so um, it, it was good to have a director on there then, um, but there was nothing at the end of the day that was a trust we could have done. Paul Barry is very engaged. Um, I think in the last six months, he's probably spent half of it in this country at the football club. Um, and with the stability comes the opportunity to actually uh, do the things that you've always wanted to do but you haven't had the time because you're far fighting. So there are a lot of things going on. And uh, I think there's um, got to define an absentee um, owner or owners um, between two, one who is an owner but has no interest in it, and another who is a, an owner and has a, an interest. Now, 10 years ago, before social media and um, Zoom and uh, how you interact now nowadays. It was very hard to um, speak to, speak to somebody abroad. Um, if I wanted to ring Paul, I'd be worried about what my phone bill was. So you you were doing it via email, which isn't always the best way of doing things because people can't see what you what you're writing, your face as you're writing it, or see your face as you're speaking. So now with zoom it's very easy to get speak to him it's just like doesn't matter whether he's in america or he's in in cambridge you can soon talk to him and um interact with him and that's the major change i think that's one of the things that have come out of covid that probably never happened before is how you can interact with people who are remote from you um and this morning i probably spoke to him for about 15 20 minutes At Think Fan Engagement, we're fond of reminding you all that fan engagement has to be a strategic concern. But how do you plug it into fan experience? The fan experience company are the experts in the field. We got the thoughts of Mark Bradley and Darren Young and some reflections on the controversial topic of fans as customers.
Martin, I mean, I think that, you know, on, on a very basic level, um, Kev, what we, we try and do is look at the experience as part of a wider um, a wider strategic aim for the for the clubs we work with and and for the assessments that we do but basically the, the experience becomes a, a single part of that 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 we try to to really get clubs to focus on in terms of the whole match day itself um picking up from pretty much when people start to look at clubs especially if they're new fans and buying the ticket right the way until till they get off the car park at the end yeah, I think I think what we what we've learned over the past um, however many years, seventeen years that we've been um, we've been doing this, is that uh, focus is the thing that most people are missing, and by focusing on the fan experience and giving feedback on it from the perspective of a of a fan, um, that can often have a kind of a, gal a galvanizing effect on the club, make them sit up and take notice. But but as you say, it's it's one of arguably four or five. And the key strategic areas when which put together take the club in a direction which he could describe as sustainable i think in, in, in as much as you're giving the club more opportunities to inf influence an attendance than simply than simply winning games and you're speaking to a, a sunderland and a walsall fan here so you know the winning games bit isn't part of uh, isn't part of it so you know when we when we uh, focus on the experience it's not the be-all and end-all it's using the experience as a catalyst uh, to get the club to sit up and take notice, or the league, or the association. I think and it makes it easier for, yeah. for the people at the club to understand as well, and to because I think it breaks it down into something very tangible that they can see that they can have a direct impact on. And very often, they don't realise that it's actually that's engagement as well, you know, and the things that they're doing um, are actually engaging with fans, but that they see just just improving the experience. But as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter what they think it is as long as they're doing it fans tolerance for poor stadium experiences um seem to be seems to be dropping shall we say and i think that might be partly a result of the pandemic you know that that kind of enforced 18 month break from going to the game starts getting you to you know force yourself to ask questions that why have i gone to this place for 30 years and still not got hot water out the taps um you know so i think there is a there's an intersection there between those feelings and a need for the club to demonstrate they're they're aware of them and, I think when we first started, it was it was risky to talk in terms of brand. You know, so if you had a, a business outside of football, a, a business a B2C organization, business to consumer, who is supplying something, then obviously good customer service is part of that deal. And the very best organizations want that experience to be flavored with something that goes deeper, what they stand for, what they represent, their brand for, for what it is. And I think that's a kind of a challenge that football clubs have to embrace. You know, not only do we have to provide a good experience for our fans in terms of answering the phone, delivering tickets when we promise we'll deliver them, taking their concerns seriously, trying uh, earnestly to improve the experience they have. But actually, fans are expecting that to be delivered in a way that reminds them why their club is special. And I think that's a that's a big challenge moving forward. And also, what you, well, I think the other there's a similarity and, and that, that that picks up what Mark said about the, the way fans' tolerance levels have changed, because I don't think there's any doubt that, that they have. But I think what happens is now fans tend to expect a little bit more. And because they see it maybe at other clubs as well, if they go 
to away matches, they'll start to expect a little more and they'll start to ask more of their club and say, why aren't you doing this in, in the way that they probably wouldn't have done 10 or 15 years ago. And then and one thing I've definitely noticed recently is that also fans start to pick up on things and highlight them far more when you're in a when you're in, especially when you're in a losing run. You know, so if the club aren't doing particularly well on the field, then suddenly you start to pick up on these things and say, and your tolerance levels yeah. drop that little bit, that drop a little bit further still. The, the best experiences are formed from the experience that previous customers have had. If there's a there's a virtuous um, circle of um, people having an experience, the organisation delivering it, harvesting feedback, then using that feedback to enhance the experience, thereby deepening the emotional relationship with, with, that, with that customer to the point at which price stops becoming a differentiator and it's more to do with the strength of the emotional feeling. And I think, I think you, 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 it's a really interesting point because one of the problems in football is that because, and we're as much to blame in the past as, as anybody, fans have demanded success on the pitch. The focus, if you like, the culture within the club is 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 kind of characterized with an aggression that you need to win on the pitch. So that side of the club that's aggressively trying to win games and that which are, which fans like to see, that aggression starts to infect other parts of the club, particular uh, fan facing parts. So that when you ring up with an inquiry, you either find that the club uh, doesn't have a phone service between Monday and Friday, which is increasingly the case at lower levels of the game, or isn't interested in you, or doesn't get back to you. So I think I think that's that in our, in my experience certainly the two go hand in hand. I think as well. It, what I would say is that I'm sure that you probably can engage with fans even if your experience is not brilliant. But I think culturally you've got to have them both in sync for for it to work properly. So I think if you're doing if if a club's the sort of club that will engage with fans on a on on a proper level and do all those things very well, then it's probably going to have the right experience on match days as well, and vice versa. I mean, just just one example is that, you know, in, in the assessments that we undertake and we were just talking about this to somebody the other day, we've done more than 3000 in the past uh, 16, 17 years, probably less than 5% have uh, resulted in the assessor receiving a request or being uh, informed of the ability to provide feedback on his or her experience. And I think that that is a uh, as a measure kind of shows you how far we've got to go because you would think it was obvious that especially a first-time fan would receive a feed, feedback after the game. We know that Azed Alkmaar with our friend Baz Schnatter were doing that four or five years ago, but we we see that as a massive opportunity for clubs and it's so easy to do with a link on the website, a hashtag, a, a post-match email for those who've bought online. But if you think about it, that's something in the customer service world they've been doing for what? 20, 20, 30 years. We, we do a lot on when we talk to clubs about life, lifetime value, because the you know, I mean we've done this exercise in the past and it gets gets you can get some quite ridiculous numbers. But when you look at the the potential lifetime value, especially if you were to bring in a fan at the age of I don't know, six or seven and they're still there, they're still there through their whole life, the amount of money they'll spend is incredible. But I think pro my experience is that until a club doesn't see it as a cost. Then, then they're going to have a difficulty understanding that because they're just thinking, oh, to fix this or to improve this, it's going to cost X amount, and we can't spend that because we might we might have something else in the budget that we'd rather spend it on. And and if you can't make that leap that says, well, actually, if we do all these things and we make this improvement, then it's going to bring in X amount of new fans who are some of them are which are going to stay for life, and and we're going to make thousands and thousands out of them. Um, I think that's going to be a difficult step. 
I think, for, and then the other thing that I would add to that, um, what Darren was saying, is that if you look at the wider business world and progressive um, customer-driven businesses, they're not actually using return on investment as a direct measure of customer engagement. What they're using is advocacy, likelihood to recommend net promoter. And that's where we should be converging. You know, like I say, if we were taking feedback from our fans, from our existing fans, from new fans, from different, different groups within the fan base, and the ultimate measure was how strongly would you recommend attending matches or engaging with this club to your friends and family, then that by definition is an indicator of whether you're likely to be uh, increasing attendances, um, attracting new fans, attracting more interest. And uh, so, of course, for me, you know, it isn't it isn't a question. And like you just said, and we know there are so many variables that, that can affect someone's match, not just from the weather. We've had COVID restrictions. You've got, you know, recent team performance, uh, kickoff time, time of the year. There are so many factors that if you try to actually get through all of those and isolate a an actual return on investment you'd be you'd be too old to do anything about it so i think it is about advocacy yeah i did a workshop last week and um it was really interesting because i think it was a real eye-opener for, for staff at, at a club i was working at in that i showed the the net promoter um chart with the with the the, the figures from you know from zero to ten and when they understood the, the difference between what someone who scores a nine or a ten will do in terms of advocacy and some of the things Mark just said about buying tickets and recommendation and all those sort of things. When you see the difference that someone who scores a nine out of 10 will do compared to somebody who just thinks the experience is good, I think it was a real eye opener because people think, oh, as long as it's good, it's fine. You know, and, and, and suddenly when you say, actually, if you go to that next level, it will make such a difference to the behavior of the fan in the way they, they interact with you and what they do and how much they spend and all those things. Those are the sort of things that we can perhaps take from the customer service world and really sort of help to, to drive engagement and improvement in, in, customer, in, the, um, in the football world. When it comes to football, activism can still be a dirty word but many fans are activists. It was my route into football, so let's hear from one of the most successful groups in football, Spirit of Shankly. Spirit of Shankly, the Liverpool Supporters Trust, are about to sign an agreement that will transform fan engagement at the club. They were formed in 2008 during the disastrous reign of former US owners Hicks and Gillette. Their chair, Joe Blott, gave us his thoughts. Locally, the engagement with, with fan, our, our fan group uh, Spirit of Shankly as a union representing the majority of Liverpool fans uh, was positive. Um, you know, certainly all the the day to day, week to week morass that all football fans deal with with their clubs. Um, you know, lots lots of good dialogue that that, that took place um, all of the time. Really, I think what we'd had though, as you said, was a bit of a history of the owners uh, in particular uh, coming up with with ideas of, of doing things which 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 didn't really match what, what the local situation was. So, you know, we we, we had some flip-flopping along from decisions that had been taken about the the £77 increase for tickets, the the trademarking of, of, of the name Liverpool, which you know isn't doesn't even belong to the Liverpool Football Club. Um, we had the uh, furloughing of staff, you know, how can a multi-billion pound worldwide organization furlough its staff and use our government resources? And then, of course, leading on to that, the Super League. So, so I think what we had was was that, uh, on the one hand, was good, positive local engagement. On the other hand, in terms of the owners, um, there still seemed to be 
major attempts at kind of avoiding the usual fan engagement, really. And I think you know that came to that came to a head with 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 the Super League announcements. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'll, I'll try and try and uh, summarise it as best I can with with going into too much detail, but at the same time, can provide any detail that's needed in terms of the. Um, you know, sort of board involvement, board engagement. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, Liverpool's a multi-billion pound, you know, organisation. Um, if we if we had board representation at the Fenway Sports Group level, we'd be one of probably 72 voices because of the, the, the size and nature of the work that they do. Um, and even locally, it, uh, in terms of the Fenway Sports Group Liverpool elements of it, you know that that board is is wholly represented really as a, as by FSG and um, our voice would still be low in that. Um, so whilst we might have the board representation, um, would our voice be heard? Um, very very doubtful to be quite honest with you, just because of the structure of Liverpool uh, and obviously throughout the pyramid. You know that sitting on a board might actually be beneficial for some for some fans' engagement in, in terms of it, but. But we actually don't believe that's the case for Liverpool. And one other reason for that is that, you know, you're sitting on a board and and, and your responsibility, uh, first and foremost, is to the board. It's to the company that you, you, you're you assigned to. Um, now, Liverpool are going to make some many, many uh, difficult decisions through finance, through transfers, etc. Um, and I wouldn't want to be, and I wouldn't want any other fan to be in that position that they were walking to the ground or walking away from the ground and, and fingers pointing at them at decisions that, they might have opposed, but actually ultimately have to agree to. Um, so we felt there was another way, and I think I think that the, to be to be absolutely fair, LFC recognised that as well as did as did the owners um, in terms of wanting to work with us. Um, but you're quite right that it can't just be done in such a way that you know we'll we'll just speak more often to you. There has to be something that is about being embedded in some kind of um, legally binding agreement. So. So what we have um, that we've been working on that is close to close to agreement now is that first of all it's about recognizing Spirit of Shankly as the the club's recognized supporters trust. Um, but not only that, to make that as part of a contractual obligation, um, mm-hmm. so that they, they do have to re- recognize us. I think the second one is um, sorry. And just go back to that. that. You know, that's a bit like if you if you think of a company having a trade union recognition agreement. You know, clearly from our perspective, that's what what this is. I think the second element is is about that contract um, or the text of it will be written into the the football club's articles of association. And we believe that's really important for a number of reasons. One is you know FSG may not be our owners for much longer or even any time in the future. So it's about future proofing. Um, but also as well, you know, the, the actual articles belong to the Liverpool Football Club and Sports Ground. So it's, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't belong to an owner. It doesn't belong to a fan. It belongs to the whole community. Uh, and that's what we felt was really important about that. So so we've got legally binding contract for Spirit of Shankly, legally binding in terms of the Articles Association, in terms of, in terms of the fan engagement. But critically, the fan engagement also has three component parts. Um, the first one is they have to engage with us. Um, that doesn't mean to say that they have to have a decision from us or not do something because they, they, they've not engaged with us. But one thing they have to do is engage with us over the annual accounts. Now, they've never done that before. Uh, you know, we just see them when they're, they're released to the press. Um, secondly, any kit design. Uh, 
you know, we've seen, haven't we, that um, other clubs have, have, you know, sort of really sold out in terms of the way that they, they, they've had their kit designs. So at least we'll be engaged about it. Again, we might not have a, a, a true say on it because the sponsors will probably have more of a say than us, but at the same time, it's engagement. And then thirdly, I think is a critical one, is engagement in the sponsorship principles as well. Um, you know, football sponsorship at this moment in time is, is awash with, with all sorts of washing, really, isn't it? Um, all sorts of risk around gambling, around cryptocurrencies and goodness knows what. Now, again, we probably can't stop Liverpool um, aligning themselves with one of those organisations. However, we can agree the principles between ourselves. So the values of the club, the values and the ethos of, of ourselves, you know, should shine through in terms of what, what sponsorship we engage with. I think the second one gets on properly into consulting. Um, and that would be a change, for example, to, to the club crest. Um, if you wanted to play the 39th game away from Anfield, um, you know, that would have to be engaged with us. Um, and any significant changes to the stadium uh, as it currently stands. So, you know, starting to, from, from engaging, we're now starting to consult. But the main issue that we've got is consent as well. So, you know, other, other clubs, um, other fan groups and other, the fan-led review is talking about a veto. Effectively, this consent is our veto. So in terms of that, it would be, um, you know, a ground share, uh, a ground move, um, anything that's existential to the football club. And that would also include the breakaway league. Um, so, so they would have to absolutely get our consent for that. And I think the other thing that we've been able to do, and again, this is hopefully, you know, re is refreshing in, in the modern game, is that everything that reflects here, the men's game, will also be reflective of the women's game as well. Um, so we're not, we're not operating as two separate entities or running a, a twin track approach in terms of engage, consult, consent. It'll be, it'll be entirely the same for both. And that's really important because in terms of how this is going to operate, um, Spirits of Shankly have been requested to set up a supporters board. Um, so that will be wholly run by Spirits of Shankly. It'll comprise of 10 members of our committee. Um, plus six representatives of other fan groups allied to this to, to the club. So um, the Liverpool Disabled Supports Association, cop out to our LGBT plus organisation, Spy and Cop 1906, who are kind of the younger element, the more... We're also the official Liverpool supporters committees, faith and ethnic uh, groups, um, and, and, uh, and, and ourselves, of course. And... Um, what that does is that that brings together 16 uh, people, but representing, you know, somewhere in the region of, I checked the figure for, but I think it's about half a million people that we represent between us um, in Liverpool fans, you know? So, I mean, it, it's hugely representative of the Liverpool fan base, um, but run by supporters. Um, now, representatives of that supporter board, probably the chair and vice chair most often, would then meet monthly with the with the LFC uh, local board, um, but annually with FSG as well. So what you've now got is the you know a real constructive dialogue and and the, and the, the I think two two other sort of spins around that is for the organisations themselves. So for for Spirit of Shankly for the LDSA this uh, disabled group, they will retain their independence. So if there was something that a major issue that 
others didn't have to get involved in. They could still go and hold the club to account for whatever issue that was. If it's strategic, which you think is the key about some of this, but that goes through the supporters' board in the middle. And then the outcome of that is dealing with, with, the, with the club itself. But finally, just to say, in terms of feeding into that, there will be three fan working groups. They will be, again, chaired by someone from the supporters' board, um, but facilitated by the club themselves. But we'll deal with those issues um, around, around ticketing, around um, match day experience, and, and around um, uh, cultural and, uh, and ethnically diverse uh, arrangements. But it would be, as I say, chaired by someone from the supporters' board. And what the beauty of that is, is that those working groups will feed into the supporters' board. The supporters' board will develop a strategy to take to the football club. So what we'll have is for probably for the first time ever, is you know a, a three to five year plan of, of what we want to see Liverpool Football Club to be like in three to five years. And again, that transcends ownership then as well, because we've started the engagement and whoever comes to take over, if, if it was in that three to five year time span, would have to abide by it through the articles. Now, okay, the cynic might say, well, you can always rip up articles of association, you can always, yeah, you, you can, but that's a, that's a legally led process then what we've got in place though is, is hopefully the the normal way that we operate um and, and i think overall what that gives is a level of confidence uh to fans and to the club uh, you know we're close to signing the deal and um you know it'll only be the proof will be in the pudding but i think as you quite rightly said you know it takes two sides to have a conversation and two sides to take things forward and in the spirit of where it is i think we've got a really good opportunity to to make it work here Now it's back to the table. Let's find out who's in the chasing pack and who's number one at fan engagement in English football. It's the top ten. Is there a new number one? As we find out who's top of the shop in the fan engagement index for 2020-2021 season. Number ten, it's Bristol Rovers. At number nine, it's Doncaster Rovers. At number eight, Norwich City. At number seven, Reading. At number six, it's Newport County. At number five, Lincoln City. At number four, AFC Wimbledon. And at number three, Carlisle United. And at number two, Cambridge United. Congratulations to winners, Exeter City. So it's congratulations to Exeter City, top of the fan engagement index for the third year in a row. We hear from them now about the secret of their success. Nick Hawker and Clive Harrison are both directors of the club and of the Supporters Trust. Nick is chair of the board of both, whilst Clive is also club director of Supporter Engagement. We chat about what makes the club so successful at Fan Engagement and how they make their strategy work on the ground. So I think I think I said to you the last time we spoke, Kevin, that it, it's not enough to be fan owned. It has the the fans have to feel like they own the club. So those are two very different things. You 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 could own the club and have uh, nothing whatsoever to do with it. Um, we we 
we uh, take uh, an enormous amount of trouble to to try and ensure that they feel like they they're on the football club and you know this year the members voted for a two million pound investment that we wouldn't have done had we not had their consent and that's three three and a half thousand fans all voting um to as to whether we make this investment or not so so it's important that they feel like they uh, they own their football club the other issue is is that at club board level um the, the fans are our biggest stakeholders and that's that that's clear i, I don't know why you would think any any different and so uh the the, the chairman who, who was um managed the board prior to me created two subcommittees that were specifically to provide transparency and oversight uh, to this to the fans via the trust so one was the finance and governance uh, subcommittee where all of the finances are uh, made available to uh, our members and to supporters via the trust but also the the supporter experience subcommittee which which clive uh, chairs and 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 so the, it, at board level we really put a lot of effort into ensuring that our members that the trust members and the supporters in general get a good oversight of what's going on at the club they are the biggest stakeholders so why wouldn't you do that i think it's uh, it's just a, a focus thing really and as you mentioned this is the the third year uh, that we've won it pandemic very much gave us the opportunity and the need to look at what we were doing uh, and do it in a different way and i think um that has that has taught us some lessons um hopefully we've moved on this year from our result last year and hopefully we'll keep doing it um it's, it's about refocusing really uh the subcommittee has been around for a couple of seasons now uh it includes um trustees on that as um, both directors um, and various members of the club and um, different areas that are brought together in a meeting where we really really um, give a supporter look at every every detail of things that we're doing. Um, the subcommittee basically has oversight of all the revenue streams of the club apart from football um, and it really lets the uh, supporters have a perspective on on all the areas it's um as well as um chairing the uh, supporter experience committee i also chair the grecian groups uh which is a meeting that we have every six to eight weeks where all supporters uh clubs come together all the areas of the business come together and we have an open forum um it's been very successful on zoom it's allowed supporters groups from london and yorkshire to take part um nick is very often at those as the chair of the board we have um Julian Tag there, who's uh, the president and runs the football side of things in the business. And we're all in through Zoom now. We're all allowed to get together on those occasions. And it's a very open forum where questions are allowed to be asked. Uh, and they're very open in the sense that um, the business side of things is giving real positive feedback to, to uh, the supporters. Also, um, we do, the trust itself runs a supporter survey and the um, recent months, we've been developing um, the newest edition, which will go out in March. I think the last time we did it was probably two or three seasons ago now. And we'll be able to, 2018. So we'll yep. be able to compare. Um, many of the questions are very similar. Um, we have some new things going on at the club, so they've been included as well. It does actually bring it all together under one umbrella. 
Well, it, I mean, it's, it's certainly hard work. I, I think there are a number of key ingredients. Um, you, you, you have to have uh, a trust board and a club board that listen to one another. You know, it's, the, it's that gentle art of listening rather than what, what I think is common in football is talking a lot. So we, 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 we try to listen to one another. I think we've been, over the years, in actual fact, we've been particularly smart at our recruitment and the people that we have serving, uh, in particular on the club board. We have an excellent club board, uh, Clive uh, and Elaine Davis, uh, and myself represent the the trust side and, and and the supporters strongly, but we also have some excellent business minded people, who um, we've recruited through 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 an agency and and who, at the point when we discussed the opportunities with them, um, it, it it was clear that they actually bought into our model that they un they actually understood supporter ownership they and and, and in very business centric terms they understood that the supporters were our biggest stakeholder the supporters trust was the biggest shareholder so just in business terms that actually makes it very very easy the fact that they also believe that this is the way forward that the football supporters are a great resource for any football club and whether that's through research whether that's through finance whether that's through just um, doing what Clive does, understanding what they want, and then delivering it—that creates the income that we need. That's that—that's all to the good. It makes supporter ownership actually makes good business sense. But what you have to do—the key ingredient—is that you listen to one another, get the right mix of people, the right skills, and listen to one another. And I, I honestly think that's that's the bit that we get right. Um. Obviously, the Supporters Trust has been around for 20 years now. Um, we have a good structure in place and it's, it's developed over that time. I think, um, obviously, having 20 years of experience, many of our supporters have been around for that length of time and certainly many of our members have. We all, we all understand um, the ethos and um, our task is to communicate that ethos to, to other businesses and to draw them into you know, to support us, um, very many of our sponsors, etc. that they're not gaining a great deal at League Two from us, but they understand and want to be involved with the, with the football club, with the trust movement, with supporter ownership. Um, and that's a tremendous uh, help for ourselves in League Two. We've been through a pandemic where our supporters supported us very well. Um, many of the season tickets, people donated the monies that um, they could have had refunded. They were offered, um, and and it has taught us has taught us lessons in in our in how we speak to supporters as well. And we we all continue to use Zoom, uh, which we probably didn't use before the pandemic at all, um, as a, as a great resource for uh, reaching out to to our um, exiled supporters. Um, but it is very much an understanding, as as Nick says now that um, you know. Every, every penny we make either goes to making the facilities better or the team better, and people buy into that. We round up this Fan Engagement Index special with a chat between Marco Sansoni and me, Kevin Rye. 
Marco is a very experienced fan engagement and experience manager, strategist and academic across sports and governing bodies, including football. We chat about fan engagement, about fan management and get Marco's thoughts on how fans need to become a key concern for all football clubs. Um, thanks for joining me. Um, uh, over in Rome, I believe, at the moment. Now, um, you're someone we've spoken, uh, I, I've spoken with before. We did a fan engagement pod episode previously which um, really looked at the, um, the, the strategic, right? The, the big, it's a word that gets used all the time, strategy. Always make sure your strategy is right. Um, you need to have a strategic approach. What, in the end, we're trying to get at, um, and I'm trying to get at with the Fan Engagement Index, and you're trying to get at with the work you do, is that um, fan engagement or um, the role of fans in their clubs and that relationship isn't, um, and shouldn't be looked after by marketing or some some discrete part of the business. It is a fundamental plank of the business, a fundamental part of the business. It's one of your key stakeholders. So everything you do has to have that then wired through the business, right? How is it in you worked in you know FIFA, you've worked in um, in in Olympic tournaments, you've worked in other sports. Um, how is this issue in say, in world football or in, in, you know, across other parts of Europe, as you see it? First of all, thanks, Kevin, uh, for the invitation. Uh, we, we had the pleasant chat uh, uh, in a few months ago, and uh, I'm glad to, to be here again. And, um, well, yes, it's, it's a topic uh, that uh, I'm really, I'm really, passionate about uh, I made uh, up my career on that and um, yeah uh, how how it is um, well we know uh, that uh, unfortunately uh, sport organizations do not have a, let's say a fun first approach and um, which we call a fun centric and um, this uh, this, uh, this status which is uh, at the actually at the actual moment is a, is a B two B focused, where in the organization I've worked uh, all over five continents in the last sixteen years, what I've observed is that uh, the client is considered uh, um, uh, the one that brings the money in. Uh, therefore, the the more the money, the more the client is important. Uh, in this B2B focused uh, pyramid uh, of stakeholders uh, on top, of course, you have the athletes because it's sport. And, uh, and immediately after that, we know the evolution since the 90s with the TV rights, then you find, uh, you'll find the broadcasters, then the sponsors, and then uh, even the internal stakeholders. If we talk about uh, uh, global events, uh, internal clients, a uh, very important one is workforce. And at the very bottom, you will find the, the, the spectators, so the spectating fans. Um, and um, this, is, this is the status at the moment, which is basically, if we forget that we're talking about sport and we're talking about an industry, which, by the way, is the entertainment industry uh, nowadays, um, then uh, if we look uh, at these from... Uh, purely business perspective, what we are saying is that this business is, is not focused on the client. And, uh, and this is a paradox. 
because uh, whoever, uh, if we think about any um, case, positive case study of the recent era, uh, all those like Airbnb, Amazon, without mentioning Netflix and so on, uh, they, they, they are the successful in companies in the, in the actual world. So this is this is the very first point that uh, I, I observed to what I call uh, the spectatorship, no, which is actually the lack of the owner of the sole client that at the end is the, the final client, which is the fans or the spectating fans, because those I'm talking about fan engagement are the main um um, what, how can I say it's, uh, the, yeah, it's, it's the main engagement driver for remote fans. So what I mean with that is that the pandemic era showed that with empty stadiums, empty arenas, uh, empty streets, depending on the event, then the TV audience drops. And this happened consistently in every sport uh, and sport event. If we look at the Olympics, uh, Tokyo Olympics um, were registered the worst TV audience since uh, uh, Seoul 1988. Uh, Beijing now let me just, is let doing, me just cut in there. really bad. Let me cut in there, Marco, very quickly. Um, the response of some people might be that, therefore, you need to regard spectators, fans, as part of the product. Now, um, in one sense you can see how that can be a positive because you might then regard that as being such a critical role that if you treat those people badly, then you're creating an inferior product. However, I would suspect the problem with that is you're productizing people and then you end up thinking of them as units rather than of peop as people. So whilst you might get some interesting learning from thinking about them as part of the overall experience, let's call it that, that only goes so far because in the end, what you've got to have is the understanding that very often, and certainly in football, um, there's a very emotional connection with a club and with the sport. So, you know, is there, a, is there what we might call in term in English, a sweet spot between realizing that fans make the, make the, the, the sport in this case, as exciting as it really is and what you know contribute to the excitement around it but actually you, you also will always need to remember that you are dealing with human beings with very often emotional relationships and allegiances uh, that's a very very good point uh, kevin uh, absolutely um first of all um not, not all fans that are the same so definitely in, in that focus on the spectating fans, then you need to segment that as well. And those hardcore fans, they, they would prefer to, to, to have no seats in that part of the stadium, for example. Uh, and um, they, they don't care about uh, fancy uh, uh, five stars uh, um, Michelin food. Uh, rather, they would prefer a hot, hot dog instead of uh, a cold hot dog um, and these kind of things. So the stadium itself, uh, it, it can be considered as a city, you know, in every city we have different part of the city. You have the, the shopping mall, you have uh, the, 
the residential area and so on. So in this perspective, and way more than spectators are, are way more than part of a product. Spectators are the real influencers. Uh, this, this is how they should be treated as uh, the VIPs as a whole, because that uh, is, the, is the moment of truth. Those who are uh, familiar with, uh, with the experience design, right? Uh, that's the real moment of truth where you can make uh, the difference for those who are uh, investing their time and their money in being there in person, which nowadays is not the best experience. You were mentioning uh, these. Um, in my courses, I always ask the question to the guys, um, have you ever been um, again in a restaurant where you ate, uh, where you weren't well treated, let's say, from all perspective, from food, from the kindness of the waiters and so on. And obviously everyone says no. Well, how was your experience at the stadium last Sunday? Oh, it was terrible, this and this. It happens all the time in all the world. And, uh, yeah. and again, I said, so why are you going back to, to the stadium? Because there's passion involved. Because you're not, you're not uh, as a customer, behaving as a customer, you are behaving as a person who is in love with something. Right. So. Let's get to the, I think, what will really be the final point of this. And, and, you know, let's try and see if we can get some sense to this. That's when you start to get to questions of, um, uh, of leadership. Yes, you know, that leadership is really important and that you have to have leaders. Um, and that can be leaders within the various teams. It can be leadership in terms of how people often think of it as the top of the organisation. But it's worth pointing out that it might also mean, especially in something like football, that that's where you have to regulate behaviour, where you have to say to clubs, there are standards you have to operate to, because every single club is the same in its DNA. In the end, um, a football club is a football club. Yes, Manchester United is very different from um, AC Milan or Roma, right? But actually, at its basic level... It's a, and, and in many, many levels, but it's at its basic level and its foundation and, and what it does, it is exactly the same. And therefore, those relationships, that position of fans is no different. So you have to then say you don't have the option of considering whether fans are important. You must do this and it must be done a by regulation primarily. Now, that's the discussion and, and that's the thing we're going through in English football at the moment. Do you think that's something that 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 has echoes all over? Let's say just talk about football. Does that have echoes in Italy? Does it have echoes? I've certainly seen it in, in those countries where I've worked. But you know, just to kind of wrap up, do, do you see that, you know, here's here's leadership, here is regulation. You have to have both. If you don't have both, then you don't get, you know, what's anyway, over to you. Uh, absolutely, absolutely agree with you. The, 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 the key here is to elaborate standards, as you said, as you said, and standard of level of service as well uh, goes with that. So to, to define the minimum level of service, uh, it, is, it is something that we do in, uh, in uh, local organizing committees when we organize, you, organize, uh, you have a, an Olympic game, to give you an example, uh, the queuing, uh, the requirement for the queuing at the security check uh, for uh, spectators uh, 
so general mission that's how we call it um general mission spectators it's maximum 20 minutes so the service is sized to attend the peak of the demand which is the last hour you open the gates three hours ahead two hours ahead depending on the event uh, four hours ahead if it's a it's if it's a final of a world cup um but um therefore so you quantify the amount of stewards you need the amount of magnetometers and x-ray machines because the level of security is enhanced in those events so it's like just like the airport security which you go through that before the turnstiles and then the turnstiles based on the turnstile if it's full height there's a, there's a throughput uh, which is um, the standard is 660 per hour i mean these are uh, standards that are applied in global events, but which are not yet applied in uh, um, football championship, uh, basketball, rather than other events. And so you're absolutely right. With a definition of a minimum level of service and standards, then uh, the organization, uh, together with the leadership, because you can make the law, but if they, we, we've seen it with the, with the SLO, no, how long it took to um, to actually apply that recommendation from the European Union, and then each country is interpreting the the rule in its own way. Well, it means that it, it wasn't clear enough. It can be improved, and there's time to do that, of course. But oh, this goes all together with what you said. And overall, it should be. This is why we link. You know, we. Uh, we uh, talk about a holistic approach to to what I call fan management. So yeah. the fan engagement falls into that. The fan experience falls into that, and uh, the fan representation. This is uh, there's uh, a lot going on about that also in the UK. I'm reading. Um, well, the fan representation in the board is a very good thing, but if you want to keep the leadership engaged, you better have uh, someone representing the fans is a professional figure inside the organization that helps this the the, the security liaison officer uh, uh, as well so this is this is how i see the evolution uh, uh, in this sense okay look marco thanks very much for um for sparing the time i think it is really i mean it's a subject we have talked about a lot and um when we did when we do speak and it's a subject that you know we could do a lot more on but i think the important thing for me is is that you've you've framed it as a uh, you know it's a strategic absolutely strategic importance that there is a leadership point to it there is a regulation part to it but actually as you did with the slo in the end um all of this affects the direct experience of fans so look thank you very much for uh, for coming on and we'll speak again soon no doubt Thank you for listening to this Fan Engagement Index special and our whistle-stop tour around the results, the trends and the voices of fan engagement in English men's professional football. Don't forget, if you want more detailed data, including comparisons of previous years, get a full breakdown of results and tables, plus access to best practice and more, go to fanengagement.net to register. It doesn't cost a penny. We're already planning the next Fan Engagement Index covering the 2021-2022 season. Where will your club finish? Thank you.